In 2,000 years of history, you can imagine in the church, the cross has become our central focus, but also we've cleaned it up a bit, made it a little more palatable, put it on necklaces and used it to adorn walls in our house and in our church. We do know some of the horrors of Roman crucifixion and we're aware on a cognitive level of some of the shame that our Lord endured on our behalf, but we really would rather not think too deeply on it. And I would say I would fall in that camp more, more often than not. I'd, I'd rather not think too deeply on the shame and the mockery that our Lord endured to purchase our redemption. But we have that privilege tonight, and I call it a privilege on purpose. We have even what I would say a, a great joy before us to consider the depth of the agony of our Lord as he suffered and bled and died for us. It has been my prayer today that God would take us beyond a cognitive level understanding of these things and impact us in the depth of our being. That he would grip our affections and our sensibilities as we gaze afresh and anew on this Christ, on this cross. May he answer that prayer as we consider Matthew 27. Let's turn back to that text that Calvin read for us a few minutes ago in Matthew 27. In Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53, you remember that he said, this suffering servant would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That's Isaiah's words, Isaiah 53. As you read the gospel, you come across so many instances in which those words are fulfilled, where our Lord is despised and rejected. His words are challenged at almost every corner. His claims to deity were denied and mocked. Even his clear evidences of power and glory and majesty through his miracles were laughed at and pushed aside and thought to be of little consequence. Though he, being God in the flesh, lived a life of grief and sorrow and rejection and shame. And that shame and that mockery and that agony climaxes in the text before us tonight. That shame is more concentrated in these verses than in any other section of the New Testament. As we come to Matthew 27, I think we should set the scene. Calvin did a little bit before he read, but let me remind you of a few things. Jesus has already endured at this point, as we come into verse 27, he's already endured hours of shameful mistreatment and miscarriages of justice. He's already appeared before the ruling council of the Jews, known as the Sanhedrin. He's been roundly condemned by them based on false charges of blasphemy that they've made up. Having condemned him, they have then beaten him and spit on him and pulled at his beard. They have laughed at him and they have told him to prophesy and they have made mockery of him. Then they sent him to Pilate, the Roman governor, and he sought to get rid of Jesus any way he could, but he was forced to exchange Jesus for Barabbas, a political criminal who had obviously done something worthy of death and everyone knew it. 
the most notorious of criminals perhaps in Jerusalem of that day, they claimed they wanted Barabbas more than Jesus, saying Jesus is worse than Barabbas. This perfect son of of God then was condemned to die, scourged before Pilate and delivered to the soldiers to be crucified. By the time we get to verse 27, Jesus has been up all night. He's been denied by all of his disciples. He's been betrayed by one of his own. He's been arrested and tried in a kangaroo court of both Jewish and Roman varieties. He's been mocked and beaten on several occasions. He's been spit upon and laughed at. He's been completely rejected by all of his own people. He's been scourged, which was the the vicious beating by the Romans in which they used the cat of nine tails whip, would wrap around his back to his side and tear apart his skin from his muscle tissue, from his connective tissue, and leave him as a mangled, bleeding mess. And then he is turned over to the soldiers in verse 27, for whatever sport they want to make of him before they crucify him. Concentrating our focus on verses 27 to 44, I want you to see the mockery and the shame that our Lord endured for our redemption. Consider first the mockery of the soldiers in verses 27 to 38. Having it already been read, I won't read these verses again, but we'll walk our way through them. Jesus was turned over to these Roman soldiers who are simply mercenaries who are conscripted from the peoples conquered by Rome. One commentator thinks they likely were Syrians because they probably could speak the languages of Jerusalem and could then be good Roman soldiers and survive in this climate and culture. But they also were assigned to the the hottest spot in the Roman Empire, the the place that was the, the flashpoint of concern for every Caesar as he ascended the throne. And so these men, these Roman soldiers, were well-trained, merciless killers. They were here to keep the peace through violence. Through any means possible, make sure that the Judeans stay in submission to the Romans. The Romans had perfected the art of public humiliation and suffering through crucifixion. They did this as an effective tool to squelch all rebellion throughout their empire. And these soldiers on this Friday morning had one job. These 600 men in this battalion had one job, and that was to make sure that Jesus died in the slowest, most painful, and most embarrassing way possible. That was their job. And they were good at their job. They were the best of the best. Verse 27 tells us that the whole battalion came together for this professional mocking session. Thinking and viewing this from the life of a soldier, this is probably one of the highlights of their lives as a soldier. Being a soldier, I'm told, is months upon months of sheer boredom and training followed by seconds of excitement. I'm guessing these men have trained and trained and trained and had very little excitement, and finally they get some fresh meat in their midst, and pardon me for being crass about our Lord, but I'm trying to talk about how they would view him. They have some fresh meat before them, some, some pious and arrogant Jew who thinks he's the king of them all, who had the arrogance to think that, that he could overthrow Rome, and, and now he needs to be made an example of. 
This man headed to crucifixion for claiming to be king provided an opportunity for these men to have some depraved fun at his expense. To lighten their load of being soldiers while they could mock at and laugh at our Lord. So these 600 or so hardened soldiers gathered around Jesus and the mockery began. There's maybe 120, 130 of us in the room tonight. Multiply that by five. With one man in the middle upon whom all eyes and all intents of heart is focused on making fun of this man. They stripped him naked and grabbed a scarlet robe, which was likely one of the cloaks that they as soldiers would use to drape over their armor for a layer of warmth. Something just laying around that they threw on him to make him look like he was a king. Twisted together a crown of of thorns meant to mimic the leafy crown worn by the Caesars while also inflicting upon the head of their victim another layer of pain and shame. Next, they put a reed in his right hand to, to mimic and fake a scepter as a king. Now the image is complete. Our, our naked Lord dressed in this too big of a robe with a reed in his right hand and a crown of thorns on his head. The stage was set. Now the real mockery could begin. The victim was prepared He now looked the part. Now we can have our fun. Verse 29 tells us that they kneeled down before him and mocked him by saying, Hail, King of the Jews. The ridiculousness of the moment could not have been more palpable. There's no way you walk past this scene and think they actually think he's king. You gaze upon this moment and you know they are mocking him to the greatest extent of their ability the shame that our Lord must have felt and known in that moment is beyond description. You have never known shame to this level that our Lord here feels. But as hurtful and as painful as their words were, they were not done. Their shaming continued with spitting upon him and with taking the reed from his hand and striking him on the head, beating him on the head, crushing those thorns deeper into his scalp, producing yet another layer of flowing blood down his marred head. Imagine the scene for a moment. These 600 hardened military men are are pressing around our Lord, each of them vying for an opportunity to say their piece, to spout their, their hilarious comment, So that the whole crowd of soldiers can laugh at them and and they can feel good about themselves at making sport of this Jew. You can imagine the vitriol that's rising in these soldiers' hearts. They've been ripped from their homelands and torn from their families, not by their own choice, conscripted by Roman power and might. They've been sent away to a distant land and they've said, go serve as a soldier for this amount of time and keep the peace for Rome at all costs. You can imagine they see this Jew who is one of the reasons why they have to be here and they now have their moment to take it out on him. To mock him and to beat him. These are, these are not light slaps on the head with the reed. 
These are full force blows to make known their hatred of the Jews. They want everyone to know, you mess with us and this is what you get. You counter Rome and we're going to do this to you. You can hear their burly voices carrying their insults. You can see their lips pucker as they prepare to launch their saliva upon our Lord's body. You can hear the uproarious laughter of the other soldiers as someone comes up with a a fresh dig on Jesus. And then, having finished with that layer of mockery, they decide the scarlet robe must go. They tear it from his body, likely reopening all the wounds which had in that time coagulated with the blood and had started to stick to the robe. As they rip the robe from him, they tear all that fresh open. Put his own clothes back on him and led him away to be crucified. This was all a game to them. This was all sport to them. The better they could mock, the better soldier they were. Then our Lord is led into the dark corridor of the valley of death. He's led from the praetorium through Jerusalem to a place outside of the city to be executed on a Roman execution stake, a cross. The shame of the soldier's mockery would only be surpassed by the the shame of Roman crucifixion. What happened in the praetorium was just a, a prelude to how awful this would be. This is just the introduction Now we get to the the real deal. They compelled Jesus to carry his own cross, this being a clear statement of of his condemnation. Nobody carried a cross through the streets of Jerusalem lest they were headed outside the city to die a sinner's death. Everyone knew they were about to die in the worst possible way if you were carrying, dragging a cross. Shame is compounded upon our Lord because apparently he could not carry his cross all the way to Golgotha. We don't know exactly what happened, but they conscripted a man named Simon from Cyrene into service to carry his cross. And there's a lot said about Simon in commentaries and study Bibles that kind of surmise why this happened. He was conscripted to carry the cross. He wanted nothing to do with this, just like no one else wanted anything to do with this. Likely, he and his family were converted after the resurrection of our Lord. His sons are named in the Roman epistle. But we don't know that for sure, that it's the same Simon. But he does not want to be here because this is a shameful moment. He's not moved by compassion seeing this marred, disfigured man struggling to carry a cross and steps in and says, oh, I'll take it. Now you run as far away as you can from this scene. He didn't get away fast enough. They made him carry his cross. They led him then to a place known as Golgotha, or in Latin, Calvaria. It was a prominent hill right outside the city of Jerusalem, right out its main gate, right near the main thoroughfare in and out of town, so that all would see the shame-filled death of this condemned man. The clear testimony being to all who would see Turn on Rome, and this is what you get. Threaten the power of Rome and Judea, and this is where you'll end up, on a cross for all to see. 
It was called the place of the skull because it was a place of death. You did not get driven to Golgotha to go out another way. It was truly a dead end. You went there to die. They then offered to him a drink to help with his thirst, or at least if someone offers me a drink, I assume that's what they're offering me is something to help with my thirst. You'll remember that it is the soldiers who offer him the drink. These soldiers who have zero sympathy for this suffering condemned man. Matthew says it's a drink of wine mixed with gall, which is a a non-explicit way to say that it was a bitter tasting drink. Wine was the, the base of the drink and then they mixed in some kind of poisonous, bitter tasting, ucky, awful thing to make it undrinkable. Likely making you more thirsty after you had it than you were before. The point of offering the drink was to mock this man more. Are you thirsty after all the flogging? Are you dry in your mouth after all of the, the mocking and the beating and the hitting and the slapping? Do you need a drink after walking all the way out here to die? Here, drink this. Snicker, snicker, snicker. Our Lord tastes it and rejects it out of hand. Then Matthew says they crucified him. You know this, but hear it again with fresh eyes of faith. They spread his arms out on the cross beam of the cross. Took a spike six to eight inches long, sharpened for this very purpose, drove it through his wrists, not through his hands, through his wrists so that he would not fall off of the cross. And through his ankles put together on the bottom of the cross, Raising then up this cross to drop into a hole pre-dug so that they would know the excruciating pain of, of crucifixion. As he's dropped into place and his body jars at the drop, as the psalmist says, all of his joints coming then out of place. A crucified man died slowly as they painfully pressed upon the spikes to lift their chest cavity up high enough to get some air into them to stay alive. If they didn't do that, they simply would suffocate from inability to get oxygen. The victim's own innate fight for life worked against them in prolonging their death. It was the worst way to die. As Jesus struggled for each breath, he knew a new level of pain as he pressed up against the spikes in his wrists and in his ankles, rubbing his open wounds on his back against a wooden cross. As Jesus struggled to, to breathe and to suffer well, here the soldiers gather around the foot of his cross and divide his garments among themselves and cast lots for them. They take the moment of our Lord's demise to find some advantage for themselves, another layer of mockery, another layer of shame upon our Lord as he dies upon this cross. And then they sat down. There was nothing left to physically do in the moment, so they, they sat down, Matthew says, and they kept watch over him. 
This is not a death watch per se, waiting for him to die. It's a, a watch to make sure that his death takes as long as possible. He's guard, they're guarding the cross so that no one comes and takes Jesus down. And they're guarding the cross so that no one comes and with sword or spear ends his suffering. They're making sure by sitting there that this takes as long as it humanly can. The shame then is amplified by Jesus' surroundings. Above him, there's a sign that reads, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. We read that in Matthew's Gospel. We know the truth of that statement. We know it's right. But in this moment, it's a sign of complete contempt. It means, here is the so-called King of the Jews, who obviously is not because he's suffering and dying a criminal's death on a Roman cross. What What is above him is furthered by what is around him. He's crucified with a thief on his right, Matthew says, and a thief on his left. You know that word for thief means more than someone who likes to steal things. They're political mercenaries who are out to overthrow Rome through their wicked ways. They loot and thieve and rebel against Rome trying to overthrow political powers. Likely these two men are associates of Barabbas, probably in his gang. Barabbas, you know, the man who the crowds demanded Pilate release in place of Jesus. So the clear communication of this scene is, this guy is with them. He's among them. He's in the middle of them. He's the the ringleader of them. It's a political statement above him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And it's a, a statement politically charged with rebellion by the guys he's crucified with. The insinuation is this is the guy who is leading them to rebel against Rome so that he could be king. The clear communication from the picture painted by Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is one of these guys to all who would see him. He's on the same plane, worthy of the same condemnation and death. The passerby immediately knows that Jesus is the worst of the worst. For he's in the middle, and above him reigns king of the Jews. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Do you feel it? Shame upon shame upon shame. There is no aspect of this historical event that does not compound the shame of our Lord. It gets worse, however. Verses 39 to 44, we see the blasphemy of the crowd. The blasphemy of the crowd. Those who are passing by derided him, or better, the Greek word is blasphemed him. They wagged their heads at him in unbelief and derision as they belted out for all to hear. They didn't just mutter this under their breath so that those who were traveling with them would hear them. No, out of shock and disgust and unbelief, they They screamed at the top of their lungs so Jesus and all in Golgotha's vicinity would hear them say this, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. You can hear the hatred in their tone. If you are the son of God, they say, come down from the cross. 
You see here, don't you, how they use Jesus' own words against him. Helps you understand a little bit of their logic, right? How could he claim the power necessary to, to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, which they did not rightly understand, but they took his words at face value. How could he claim that power, but now be caught up in the condemnation of the Roman system and nailed to a cross and unable to do anything about it? They're arguing from the greater to the lesser. It seems a greater feat to tear down Herod's temple and rebuild it in three days than it does to get yourself off a Roman cross. And so in their human reasoning, they say, you must not be the son of God. It's a mirror image, by the way, of the same challenge that Satan threw at our Lord at the beginning of his ministry. You remember what he said to Jesus in Matthew 4? As he tested and tempted him in the wilderness? Pointing to the stones lying on the ground, saying to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he took him to the pinnacle of the temple and he challenged him by saying again, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down and be rescued by the angels. For certainly your Father will not let you be harmed. Same challenge bookends our Lord's ministry beginning and end. The creature saying to the creator, prove to me that you are who you say you are by doing what I tell you to do. Follow that logic. Prove to me that you are who you say you are by doing what I tell you to do. That is unbelief in its worst form. It's the height of arrogance and complete rejection. Those passing by are joined in the, the chorus of blasphemy by all three segments of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are the ruling elites of the Jews. They're the ones who decided together in the early morning hours that Jesus must die a Roman crucifixion. They're made up of a, a representation of chief priests and scribes and elders or in other places referred to as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is the ruling class of the religious system in Judea. These are the, the top of the top, the elite of the elite. These are the power brokers of culture and religion and practice and economy. They're the who's who of Judea and they cry out and mock our Lord saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. These religious leaders, as you would expect, take their attack to another level, don't they? They can't be outdone by the, the puny passerbys who lodge their complaint and their mockery at our Lord. They have to go to a further level. They, they have to condemn him, not just for his words, but also for what he has done, for his works. He saved others, but he cannot save himself, referring likely to what happened most recently, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Just six weeks prior to this very event, he saved Lazarus from the grave, but he can't save himself from a cross. See how they implicitly admit that Jesus has done miraculous works? 
See how what they say implicitly makes clear that there was no doubt in anyone's mind in the first century that Jesus of Nazareth had done all the things the Gospels tell us he did? They knew it. And they say it here. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Instead of submit to him as Savior and Lord, they mock him and blaspheme him in in this moment. But this blasphemy reaches its pinnacle in verse 43. These wicked religious leaders seem to unwittingly quote Psalm 22. Whether they ever realized it or not, I have no idea, but they quote a prophetic text in our Old Testament written by David about his experience pointing forward to a coming, suffering Messiah. And they quote that text in verse 43, and I think it is quite possibly the greatest statement of blasphemy contained in all of Scripture. It is an outrageous statement of unbelief. Why is it so vile, you ask? Why would I make such a bold statement as to say it's the worst, or at least one of the worst statements of blasphemy in all of Scripture? Well, look at it. It's not just a a blasphemous statement against Jesus our Lord. It's a blasphemous statement against the Father. They don't just call into question the one suffering. They call into question the one who's letting him suffer. They know what Jesus has said about his relationship with the Father. They know he has claimed over and over again to be here on earth, on the Father's business, doing his will, submitted fully and completely. I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only say what the Father tells me to say. They heard those words. I and the Father are one. They heard those words. He had made clear to them that he was completely dependent upon the Father for all things. And so here they impugn that reality with a blasphemous statement. They're saying to Jesus in this moment, that cannot be true because you are right now hanging on a cross. More than that, they're saying that God, if he is your Father, how in the world can he let this happen to you? It's not just that you hanging on the cross makes clear that you're not the Son of God in their minds. But it also impugns the Father whom you say is yours. He must not desire you, they say. In other words, either you are not his true Son, or listen, he is not a good Father. Now do you know why I call it one of the most blasphemous statements in all of Scripture? This is, by the way, the only logical human explanation for the cross. It turns on this hinge. It has to be one or the other. One or the other. Either Jesus was not who he said he was and died under the condemnation of his own sin, or God is not a good father. This is the charge and the blasphemy of unbelief. Beloved, do you see the shame and the blasphemy our Savior faced? And yet through it all, he perseveres. He he suffered submissively through it all. Though they reviled him, you know he did not revile in return, Peter says. Though they blasphemed him and slandered him, though they made all kinds of accusations and charges against him, he hid his face from them, as it were. He would not speak 
He would not defend himself. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. Having seen the shame and the mockery of this text, you know that is not humanly possible. There's no human under the curse of Adam who can keep their mouth shut in such a great trial of affliction. Where so much mockery and blasphemy is happening, yet our Lord as perfect God and perfect man, endured it all submissively. He knew the mission. He knew the cup he had to drink. He knew these insults of human unbelief that had to be thrown upon him. And so he endured the cross. Not only did he endure it submissively, but he also suffered as our substitute. All of this shame was for us. All of these attacks of the tongue and the blows of the hand and the methods of torture meant to prolong the pain. All of it was for sinners like you and me. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Beloved, was he mocked before all? It was so that you could be welcomed and accepted before God. Was he stripped naked? It was so that you could be clothed with the robes of his righteousness. Was he crowned with thorns? It was so that you could be given the crown of life. Was he mocked as a fake king? It was so that you could be welcomed into heaven as part of the royal family. Was he spit on and hit with a reed upon his head? It was so your head could be anointed with the ever-flowing oil of his blessing. Did he carry his own cross upon which he would die? It was so that you would not have to carry the burden of your sins into eternity. Was he numbered among the sinners deserving of death? It was so you could be reckoned as righteous and innocent in the courtroom of God and given life. Were his garments taken from him and parceled out to the soldiers so that he died naked and exposed? It was that you could be forever clothed in the garments of his love and righteousness. Was he offered bitter wine to mock his thirst? It was that you could forever drink of his endless supply of living water. Was he forced to die a slow and painful death by soldiers who refused any expression of mercy? It was so that you could have unending life. Was he blasphemed as unable to save himself? It was so that he could surely save you from the condemnation of your sins. 
Did he truly and really die upon that cross under the weight of sin's shame and disgrace? Friend, it was done so that you could have true life which will exalt you to the highest glory of God's presence forevermore. The shame and this mockery was done for you. The question of the mockers is, could this be the Son of God? If you are the Son of God, then take yourself down from this cross. The statement of faith ending this mockery is seen by the centurion in a Roman's mouth, proclaiming in verse 54, truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are humbled before this scene of our suffering, Lord. We praise you that this is true, that this truly and really happened to Jesus. It pains us to know that he suffered in this way, but we rejoice that through his suffering we are freed, forgiven, forever liberated to eternal life. So in our sorrow, we rejoice and give praise to you, our God, who has saved us through the giving of your Son. Lord, we pray that you, in pricking our hearts with the depth of the suffering of Jesus, would compel us to have greater love for you than we've ever known before. Would you put to death our apathy and our indifference about you and your truth? Would you compel us by seeing Christ to love you, not just in statement, but in word and in deed? Father, we ask that you would work a mighty work in our heart as we have gazed upon our Lord Jesus. We praise you for the privilege now to come to the the table in which we remember him and this great sacrifice given for us. We ask, Lord, that you, through these symbols and through this time together, would warm our heart with the realities of the cross of Christ. Lord, we love you because you have first loved us. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. We have the privilege now to transition to the Lord's table and to come to an ordinance given by our Lord before his death that is to be kept after his death until he returns. This table has a look that is is backward and a look that's inward and a look that's forward. We look backward seeing what Christ has done. These elements symbolize for us in physical fashion a, a broken body and blood shed for us. But it's a table that also has an inward look in which we stop to examine ourselves, as Paul told the Corinthians. To not come half-heartedly or with unrepentant sin in our heart. To come humbly and submissively and joyfully in the forgiveness of our sins. And that has a look that's forward. Looking ahead to this Lord Jesus who suffered and died but rose again and is coming again. And at this table we confess we believe he's coming back. If he wasn't coming back, what's the point of remembering what he did? Just move on. But he's coming back, and so we remember so as to keep the faith until he appears.
So as we gather around this table, as is our habit, we take some moments personally and privately to examine our own hearts, to rejoice in this gift of Jesus on our behalf. If the Spirit presses upon you any unconfessed sin, particularly sin against a brother or a sister, deal with that in your heart, deal with that with your brother or sister, walk across the aisle and talk to him now if you need to. We'll wait to observe the Lord's table until that is done, forgiveness granted and a relationship restored. For the body of Christ should be one in union and unity before this table because that's what's been accomplished through this broken body and shed blood. Let's take a few minutes now and pray silently and quietly to our Lord.